Welcome to this Peer Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash GSQ. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Lilly. Welcome to this Peer Voice on demand activity based on a recent live symposium. This video based activity comprises four presentations. At any time during this activity, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Thank you very much for coming this morning for what we believe is a very important topic in the field of inflammatory bowel disease. My name is David Rubin. I'm at the University of Chicago, and this morning I'll be chairing a symposium to discuss urgency. And a, the topic is what they say and what they think, exploring tools for assessing bowel urgency in patients with ulcerative colitis. I want to thank you for joining us during the busy Crohn's and Colitis Congress here in Denver. But I also want to welcome all the people out in the virtual world who I know have logged in and are watching this program as well. Um, I'm joined by two uh, outstanding faculty members. Uh, first, I'll start all the way uh, to my right and introduce Marla Dubinsky, who is a professor of pediatrics and medicine at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai and chief of the Pediatric Gastroenterology and Hepatology Program, co-director of the Susan and Leonard Feinstein IBD Center at the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. And in the middle there is Dr. Adam Benjamin, except that Dr. Benjamin is joining us today in his role as a patient advocate and as a patient with ulcerative colitis. And we are so grateful to him that he has chosen to share his story with us and to discuss this topic with all of you today. It happens to be as well that Dr. Benjamin is finishing his internal medicine residency and will become a gastroenterology fellow in the next year. And we, of course, expect he's going to go into, see? We expect he's going to go into IBD after this, right? Uh, and we also know, of course, many of our colleagues and our own stories that bring us to gastroenterology and to inflammatory bowel disease. So, um, Adam, thank you very much for being with us and sharing your story with us. So I'm going to start us off in a moment by talking about the overall topic of urgency, which for people who take care of patients with inflammatory bowel disease is something that you may appreciate, but you may not necessarily know enough about in terms of how to assess it and certainly how it's evolving in our ability to measure it. Then I'll be followed by a conversation between Dr. Dubinsky and Dr. Benjamin regarding um, his journey and how he's experienced the disease and uh, achieving remission followed by uh, an excellent presentation by Dr. Dubinsky on the clinical tools and how these have been developed to measure urgency, but also how it can be translated into what we do in our practices. And then, of course, we're looking forward to a question and answer session and a discussion. I'm going to discuss now the topic of urgency, as well as our attempt to move this into our guidelines and how we're doing with that so that we can certainly try to impact practice. The most common symptoms of ulcerative colitis, I think, are well known to the people who are at this symposium. But I want to emphasize that as much as it's important to understand that it can be diarrhea, uh, abdominal pain, and blood per rectum, we also need to understand the additional symptoms of urgency and fecal incontinence that go along with this. And in fact, patients often experience multiple symptoms simultaneously or concurrently, 
And similarly, some of these symptoms can go away as we start to treat them, and others may persist. When I was a fellow, I was taught to assess patients' clinical activity from ulcerative colitis by asking them five questions. Are you having formed stool? Do you see blood? Do you wake up at night with a bowel movement? Do you have any urgency? And are you able to pass gas without fear of leaking? I was taught that those five questions were what we should be assessing. But I realized that in most practice, and if you look at the older guidelines and what we were taught in the traditions of IBD, urgency fell out of that. It wasn't part of this. Um, so I was fortunate to have that as part of my teaching. Uh, and I've always known that this was something we should be asking about, but struggled to understand why it wasn't captured in our clinical trials. So what exactly is urgency? Urgency is defined in a couple different ways. Bowel urgency is the sudden and immediate need to have a bowel movement. Sounds obvious. Patients with ulcerative colitis report bowel urgency as one of the most bothersome and disruptive symptoms distinct from stool frequency and rectal bleeding. So you can understand the disconnect there when our clinical trials have focused on the former two symptoms and not this newer one. Bowel urgency may be seen in patients with ulcerative colitis regardless of the presence of active disease and despite treatment. And in fact, the clinical approach to urgency can be a challenge for those of us who are taking care of those patients. Throughout the symposium today, we're going to be referring to a survey that was performed called CONFIDE. This was an online, quantitative, cross-sectional, multi-center, international survey. The study was designed to include patients and providers from the United States, Europe, and Japan. And it was designed using gastroenterologists as well as patients with inflammatory bowel disease to give feedback and to help in the design of the questions. Then it was rolled out using an Adelphi real-world survey uh, design, and information was collected about a variety of topics about living with inflammatory bowel disease and, of course, specific to our interest um, urgency, and you can see that that was focused more on the UK and the US audiences. This is one of the main messages of today. One, the top reported symptoms with the greatest impact in patients with moderate to severe ulcerative colitis are highlighted here. And if you look on the left side of these bars, the light green and light blue were reported by patients as either the number one problem they were having or the number two problem they were having. And if you look down there at the very bottom, you can see bowel urgency was ranked number one or number two by more patients than all of these other symptoms in, um, except for diarrhea. You can also see that bowel urgency with related accidents was related, and all of this was more important to the patients who answered the survey than stool frequency or waking up at night due to pain. So this is obviously something patients identify, but what you're going to be shocked to learn is how it impacts their life and perhaps you've had patients in your practice that you take care of who've experienced urgency, and all it takes is for a patient to have one episode of incontinence, and then they've developed PTSD. They're afraid to go out, they're worried when the next time it might happen is going to be, and it affects all the dimensions of their functioning. So in the additional assessment in CONFIDE, it looked at people's ability to go to work or school, their social functioning, and their general physical activity. And you can see here how bowel urgency and the fear of urgent continence were ranked um, highest over stool frequency or blood in the stool. Blood in the stool, obviously, concerning to anybody, but gets ranked lower because it's something that doesn't necessarily impact functioning. 
So this is obviously something that's very important, not just when it's active, but just having had it and then being under better control, it still impacts how people think about the way they can function. In addition, um, Marla and I talk about how shocking these data are um, to think about how many patients with colitis are wearing diapers, pads, or other protection to um, try to address this problem. You can see in this um, summary from the CONFIDE study that almost half, half the patients with colitis in the study reported having a pad or a diaper or doing something with their um, clothing in order to protect themselves at least once per week, half. So the next time you see a patient with colitis in your practice, keep that number in the back of your head that it's basically 50% um, likely that this person is doing something to protect themselves on a daily basis because of their disease. The other thing to know is that this isn't just because they continue to have the urgency, it's because they had urgency before and they're worried they might have it again. It's their insurance policy. In addition, something we don't talk enough about in our field but needs more attention is our patient's ability to be intimate. And the CONFIDE study did ask about sexual activity, and you can see here that among the U.S. patients who answered the survey, patients um, frequently noted that they avoided or had decreased sexual activity in the uh, prior three months. Um, women more than men, but still significant nonetheless. And I know for a fact, given limits on time as well as our training, that we do not routinely ask about sexual activity and the ability to um, be intimate with their partners. So something else for us to think about. And you can understand why. Now, there's been a number of efforts to define urgency and to correlate it to disease activity. The presumption is that if the disease is active, if there's inflammation in the rectum or in the colon above it, that that might explain the urgency. And in fact, if you look at some of the data, the negative predictive value is pretty good. In other words, the absence of bowel urgency is strongly associated with improved clinical and endoscopic outcomes. In addition, the absence of bowel urgency is associated with improved IBD quality of life. But having urgency, and especially when urgency is present, even when the disease is controlled, is a very significant problem that we haven't come to terms with in the field. Urgency may persist despite the treatment for ulcerative colitis in up to 50% of people. 50% of patients with IBD experience bowel urgency during inactive disease, defined the way we would usually think about it in our clinical trials, and it's not often discussed. I think about this is how I have to live because I have this disease. In fact, even in patients who describe their disease as controlled, if you ask them, how are you doing, and they say, I'm doing much better or I'm under control, 37% of them will report urgency if you ask about it. And 35 to 39% of patients have had bowel urgency even when their stool frequency or rectal bleeding scores are zero. So if you're used to asking people, how's your stool frequency, or are you having formed stools, are you seeing any blood, if you don't then go one step further and ask about urgency or fear of leaving the home, you're missing a significant part of their management. So if you go and look at our current treatment goals in ulcerative colitis, the way we educate our colleagues and also the way we perform clinical trials, you can see that the current definition of clinical remission is comprised of stool frequency, 
rectal bleeding, and endoscopic findings. And in fact, remission these days in the modified approach to this is having a stool frequency score of zero or one, a rectal bleeding score of zero, and an endoscopic score of zero or one. And so you can imagine there that that's not even really perfect um, enough, yet then we also have to remember that we're not including an, any assessment of urgency as a general principle for clinical remission in our clinical trials. We also, of course, look at a variety of other endpoints that I think are familiar to most in this audience, including steroid-free clinical remission. We look at more um, endoscopic and histologic definitions now of healing, as well as combining some of these. None of them, though, included urgency. So this is a very important point that Marla and I have been making, and um, she's been leading the effort to get this incorporated into clinical trials. So I would suggest to you as a clinician and somebody who takes care of patients with IBD that urgency must be included in our discussion with our patients, even when their usual patient-reported outcomes are improved or completely gone. In addition, we should be asking routinely about extraintestinal manifestations, and there are the expanded extraintestinal manifestations like the fatigue that is some, somewhat ubiquitous and certainly needs more attention, pain, understanding the impact of these diseases on mental health, and as I've already mentioned, sexual dysfunction. We also are thinking uh, uh, more and more about the long-term outcomes, not just of the therapies we give to patients, but of course how our patients do in their lives. What I try to do these days is summarize it in what I call functional remission, or my preferred term is actually sustained functional remission. In other words, it's fine if you ask about the symptoms. It's fine if you look at the labs. It's needed, uh, or the endoscopy. But if you don't ask the patient, how are you doing? Are you doing the things in life that are important to you? Or what were you unable to do when you were diagnosed with this condition? You're not getting at the real core of what we're trying to do as the people who take care of them. Now, bowel urgency is gaining visibility in recent guidelines. I'm proud to say that as one of the um, contributors to the ACG guideline in ulcerative colitis, we added urgency to the activity index, and I would refer you to that. But you can see as well that it's been included in AGA care pathway. The NICE guidelines in the UK include this, as well as some of the ECHO statements on managing colitis have all acknowledged that urgency should be included in what we do. So it is certainly gaining recognition. We have to translate that, though, into what we can do in clinical trials and what we do with our patients, as you're going to hear Marla and Adam discuss. So I'll end with this concept here, which is what are the points of getting urgency to be um, a recognized and studied endpoint in inflammatory bowel disease. First, we need a definition of urgency that is agreed upon. Second, we need guidelines and consensus statements to include urgency as an essential problem. Third, we need validated measures of urgency uh, to be developed, and Marla has led that and will tell you more about it. Fourth, we need investigators and clinical trialists working to include it as an endpoint, and that's our job is to push and to make sure it's part of our studies. And our clinical trials then need to actually be recruitable and completed, which is a crisis in the space of IBD, as many in the room know. We'd also like to make sure urgency is a significant finding that distinguishes it from other patient-reported outcomes and understand more whether our therapies achieve control of this and what the other factors are that may be contributing to it. And urgency can be a regulatory label. Uh, which might make it a distinction for some therapies that achieve it and have taken the time to study it. 
Finally, I think there needs to be further research on urgency to understand all the other causes, as well as the timing of its resolution. Is urgency something that comes later and we're just not assessing it properly in the current studies? So in summary, I've, I hope I've made the case that bowel urgency is a significant problem for people who live with ulcerative colitis, not just when their colitis is active, but also even when they would report that their disease is otherwise under control. We have made the point, and I think it's essential, that in clinical practice, um, the goals of treating ulcerative colitis should include control of urgency and routine assessment and asking about it in practice. Bowel urgency is increasingly recognized in consensus statements and guidelines, but we know that that doesn't always translate to practice, which is why a symposium like this one and educating all of you is so important. And finally, patients with urgency who do not have other active ulcerative colitis symptoms may require additional or different management approaches, and we're very much interested in additional research into this space. So I want to thank you for your attention. And I'm going to hand it now to my uh, colleagues, uh, Dr. Marla Dubinsky and Dr. Adam Benjamin, for a, a conversation about how this really impacted Adam's life. This, to me, is probably the most important part of any educational symposium, is hearing directly from patients. So um, the, the purpose, really, of this sort of interlude in between sort of the, um, talking about why urgency is important and how we communicate is I wanted to be able to highlight the fact that there are obviously... Adam, you know the challenges, um, and I'm I'm really curious to see your experience and how being a provider influences what you say or what you don't say. Could go either way, actually. Um, Adam and I have not talked intentionally, meaning I've met him, but have not talked and practiced because I wanted this to be really um, important and and insightful as to um, what we're going to talk about. So, before we get into what Dave talked about, because I think I'd be really interested to hear whether or not you agree or whether there are things we can do better. But first, tell us about your journey with UC uh, and how urgency may have impacted your symptom. Uh, and also then we'll get into, do you disclose that to your doctor and how difficult that was? So let's start. Yes, thank you very much. Um, so I was diagnosed with IBD when I was nine years old, um, back in 1999 when Remicade was just starting. Um, and so, or biologics, I should say. And um, my major symptoms when I was first diagnosed were urgency, um, weight loss, and, and blood in my stool. And so... Um, as I've gone on, I've kind of gone through the gambit of treatments. I've had numerous healthcare providers, wonderful or wonderful healthcare providers, and uh, it's it's led me to want to become a gastroenterologist. And uh, I think um, it's it's given me a unique perspective on on patient care for sure. Yeah. So I'm I'm focused on the fact that you've done this transition from a pediatric patient where it was probably your parent who was describing your urgency and how much blood you have in your stool, because that's what I live with every day um, as a pediatric GI. And so the, um, I'm sure that there was a point when you transitioned to being your own advocate, meaning you're 18, now you've got to talk to the doctor or whatever. It may have happened earlier. Um, but what was that like in terms of describing your symptoms and how do you feel about describing urgency when you became an adult and even now, how do you feel about communicating that to your physician? Um, and is it sort of in keeping with what Dave showed is that 
there's um, embarrassment, perhaps feeling of any shame, et cetera. I, wanna, I want people to hear what that's like on the patient side. Yeah, and I think, I think transitioning from pediatrics to the adult world was one of the most difficult things or one of the most difficult stages of, of my disease course, just given shorter appointments. Um, there weren't as many um, NPs and PAs in the pediatric world where, where I was. Um, and so it was more new faces in the adult world. And like you had mentioned, the advocating for myself instead of my parents being in, in each appointment. And I think that led to definitely at first um, in starting in the adult world, um, being a little bit more hesitant. And um, specifically, I think with the, with the setup of having NPs and PAs, not so much that... Um, where their background or where they're coming from, but it was just another new face and a new role to me that I, I wasn't initially um, as comfortable to, to share everything with. And, and that, that improved as communication between me and the, and the PAs and the NPs improved and, uh, or, or got more, more um, common. So I think, I think that was the familiarity between me and my healthcare providers was, was something that I really embraced and, and that I, noticed really helped me open up more. The idea that you have someone who's empathetic, but also you developed a safe, it's a safe place to sort of disclose some sensitive um, details about your disease. So how do you think we as providers could be better at, again, this is odd because you're going to be one of us uh, soon. So how, how would you counsel us on uh, a way of, should we be asking, I mean, we advocate, and you'll see during my section, I'm like, every, but this question should be at every visit. This should be given the importance, as Dave showed, it's like, if not the first, the second thing that patients um, experience or at least would, uh, are most burdensome. So, and the fact that one in two patients that walk into our office may have had to wear a protective garment or protective undergarment to be able to make it to work or for fear of having an accident uh, and no bathroom being around. How should we be asking that? Or, and do you feel that patients should be the ones to bring it up? Yeah, I think, I think Dr. Rubin hit it. Uh, really well in his presentation about, um, so for me, the toughest question I think to answer, which shouldn't be, but is how many times you use the bathroom in a day. And I think that's really tough for me as a patient to quantify because you're just going through the day and especially when you're not feeling good, it's multiple times and you're not really counting each time you're going to the bathroom as well as does it count if I just stand up and then have to go back right away? Is that one or two? And that means different things to different people. So although those questions are really important, I think it means different things to, to each patient. And I think the, the questions that I got asked that really hit home were the next step, the downstream. How, how does that affect your day? And, and I mean, I've, I've had to wear diapers for my board exams. I've had to, um, I have a 10 minute commute to work and sometimes have to pull off and use the bathroom before I can even get to the hospital. And so when I got, when I was able to discuss that aspect of my life with my providers, it, it not only helped me feel heard by my providers, but it also formed a, a deeper connection, I feel, with my providers than the, the important but difficult question to answer is how many times are you going to the bathroom in a day? You just gave me an epiphany because I'm thinking literally. So how many trips to the restroom? Um, maybe five, sometimes seven. 
And then I, re- you just gave me like an epiphany. So I need to, I need to be very much more aware of what I'm asking of my patients. And so, um, that's really interesting, actually, what you just said. So, well, the PRO is called stool frequency, yeah. but that's actually not it. It's yeah. the number, I mean, at least what we think is functional, which is how many times do you feel like you have to go and you go to the bathroom? It disrupts your day. I remember years ago, uh, one of the pharma companies had their um, team wearing pagers back when pagers were a thing. And the, uh, the exercise was that every time the pager went off, they had to go to the bathroom. So it tried to train them what it would be like with that interruption that you had no control or predictive value for, and you needed to respond to it. And of course, after about three hours of this, people were just ignoring the pager because they could. But people who live with these conditions clearly cannot. Yeah, that's interesting. One of the things also I was thinking as you were describing how it improved your relationship and developing um, that sort of comfort level with your providers is... Do you think that if we talked more about the impact of the disease on the day-to-day, that we as providers, we would not that we never took symptoms seriously, but we would be less focused on how many trips to the restroom and if you see blood, because at the end of the day, that's not keeping you away from work necessarily. Seeing blood in your stool is not, not letting you go to work or get off the toilet, right? So maybe focusing on things that are actually impacting your day-to-day, which means we will step up our our assertiveness with this disease and um, not dismiss the impact of it on your day-to-day life rather than our typical how many, how many stools, how many bowel movements a day in GC blood. Believe it or not, as not until more recently has urgency even been questioned in a clinical trial as an outcome, and yet the most burdensome symptoms. So... Um, do you feel that one of the things that could occur is that you would, you and the provider would say, you know, oh, maybe this is bothering me more than I should, and I should step up my therapeutic, you know, approach and not um, just try and band-aid symptoms because it's impacting my day-to-day life, and this symptom is what I want some success at achieving. Yeah, and I think, um, and, and going back, I think it's very important because as providers, we need that objective data in order to, to, tailor treatment plans, but like you said, the, the subjective, the, um, subjective symptoms and going that, that extra mile will, I think, help us be able to treat patients and treat the symptom that's affecting them, them more than, than necessarily just the number of, of times they're going to the bathroom. Yeah, because as Dave mentioned, when you, you could have one bowel movement a day, so you'd meet the criteria of remission, but if you have one bowel movement, blood or not, but it's urgent, or associated with an accident, it doesn't matter how many stools you have um, because it's that one stool alone really changed your whole perspective on your disease. Is there a better way that we as providers could ask these questions? Yeah, and um, I think, and I was talking with my wife before we came down as, as a family member and, and her having an outside um, perspective of, of my disease as well. Like what, what do we think could help? And I think one, one thing would be asking a patient to maybe keep a diary of, of their stool and that helps with the frequency, which we need to know. But then maybe putting an asterisk next to it. Did I not, almost not make it to the bathroom? Was this stool an accident or, or kind of, defining what what the bowel movement is or or if you if you just get up and then have to come back are we counting that as one or are we counting that as two is is important 
So now you have, you know, what your, you know, your research thesis will be is defining bowel urgency. You have a project, which is awesome. But the, um, what you said is really true, and we've talked a lot about this, is it's all, what's, it's all in the definition. And if we're not understanding what it means to have urgency, how to score it, which I'll talk a little bit about, and Dave sort of alluded to the scoring aspect of severity, not just do you have urgency, yes, no, because actually that may not help us decide anything, right? It's binary, it's not really, it's not how severe or how much, um, how close you are to having an accident or do you have an accident, that's a very different thing than do you have urgency, yes, no, which may be a drop down in our epic but that's about the, ex the extent of, of maybe as far as we go. Um, so the idea is that defining it may be helpful. That may be a place to, to start. And you put that as your first bullet, which is how do we define urgency? Um, and we've talked a lot about it, even in some of these surveys, right? When we send surveys out, how are we communicating what the ask is or what we're defining as, as um, urgency? One of, the, one of the messages that's come through in talking to patients about this is that if you've had urgency ever, you, you might answer the question about do you have urgency, yes, every time because you've experienced it. And for you, any sense that you have to go to the bathroom is by definition urgent because you're not sure what's going to happen. So one of the main messages in working with patients and then telling them they've achieved remission is also communicating that they can be confident in their control. And that is the greatest gift you can give a patient, is telling them that based on what we've done for your therapy and how we've assessed your condition and where you are now, it is very unlikely that you're going to have a problem in the next 12 months or whatever. And providing that piece of information to someone so that they can process it and then think that they don't have to worry that every time they might need to go that it's going to result in an accident is a really powerful tool that I think we should be incorporating. Yeah, and I think one of the things also is the impact of having one accident, and Dave made the, made the statement, because um, our, our data actually, believe it or not, shows that even if you have a perfect colon, your lining looks gorgeous, you know, and even under the microscope it's perfect, it still doesn't equate to no urgency. And so there is sort of the, a lot of mind-body experiences that our patients do have, and the pelvic floor is one of the places, especially if that's how it started. And then, you know, it becomes centralized a little bit and becomes sort of, like Dave said, the anticipation of not knowing whether you're going to make it or you're going to have urgency. How did that impact your mental health? Yeah, and I, I think it still is. I think um, having urgency being such a, a big symptom for me, I, I definitely um, still have the mental effects of that. And I, I think what Dr. Rubin had said in his um, opening talk with the PTSD is very accurate. I think um, uh, the the idea of, I think this also bridges the question of, should a patient be able to bring up the symptoms versus the provider? And I think um, one of the one of the things I thought of growing up with it was, is the urgency because of my anxiety or my stress level, or is it because of my IBD? And so then I'm almost hesitant to bring it up to my provider as a gastroenterologist, thinking, oh, they're my stomach doctor, they're they're not interested in my brain, they're or, or how I'm feeling about it. And so I'm more hesitant to bring up my my 
urgency because I'm thinking it's more odds. I'm just in my head. It's not part of my IBD. My IBD is my bloody stool, my weight loss and, and pain. I mean, that's incredibly insightful and fascinating actually, because that may be why people, it's not, it's also embarrassing to say I had an accident or I have to wear diapers or whatever that conversation. Uh, and we need to make that better. So that's definitely, and I think the fact that um, particularly in 2023, we're going to start to see drugs that actually went after this outcome. So I think that's going to hopefully bring it to light in this survey that Dave's referring to, and I'll show you a little bit more, the Confide survey, it wasn't, it was only when we asked in an anonymous way, without you sitting in front of me and me asking you, do you wear a diaper? How is your sexual intimacy? Because that's uncomfortable often for providers as much as, as patients. Um, and the fact that we found it out anonymously, I think, says a lot. And also what you just said, that because we program patients by our drop-down in our EHR, how many stools, do you have blood, that it didn't become part of what a UC patient would experience, and it became that, oh, my blood is gone, and maybe my stool frequency is down, I must be better, so this must be something that is in my head. I mean, I love talking to patients because every day I walk away learning something new that I didn't know. So I want to thank you for being so honest and um, putting, teaching and educating everybody around us. I'm going to go talk about how we ask it and how we measure it. So I want to thank you so much for being here. Really, Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, every time I talk to a patient, it just becomes... I learn something new, and seriously, it's like epiphanies, and it helps me be a better doctor, so... Um, thank you, really. All right, so um, let's talk through some of the clinical tools um, and just remember sort of how we're starting to have this dialogue and why we even talked a little bit about it is this disconnect really between the communication styles and why we're not asking, and you gave us a lot of insight to why maybe patients um, aren't going to bring it up spontaneously, yet here we are as providers answering a survey that it's on us to... to we're going to wait for the patient. Overwhelmingly, one in two physicians said, basically, if the patient brings it up, I'll assume it's a problem. And now you just told me you're not maybe going to bring it up. So this is a complete, really, this is a, an, a gap that needs to be filled. So you highlighted, and this confide just sort of added more, um, more sort of fuel to that fire that we need to do better. So thank you so much um, to highlight that. And we highlighted again that where proportion of patients, you know, reporting embarrassment, um, it really is around sort of this idea of bowel incontinence ranks number one. So proactively, we need to make people comfortable uh, in our offices and make it basically as, as routine as, do you have blood in your stool? Have you had an accident? Do you wear any type of protective undergarment? Do you wear a diaper to work? Um, you know, Adam was honest and said what happens for him during exams because uh, it's not, it's also stressful, but you also aren't going to be wanting to run out to the bathroom during your exam. So again, these are, these are really um, exactly as the confide says it. Adam sort of validated that for us right here. And we talked a little bit about in our, in our discussion around how can we be better? 
why maybe um, prov- uh, patients aren't necessarily bringing it up. It is obviously sensitive. There's embarrassment, not wanting to judge um, judge our patients or think differently about them, um, don't want to seem like they're burdening and that it is something I need to deal with, and the doctor's not going to be able to help me anyways. So that that I, I hear, and we also saw that in the confide. And what I also note is that we need to be actively um, asking the questions. And I think the, this confide survey should be everywhere, and should be in every physician's mind when their neck when the use their next UC patient sits in front of them. This is so powerful that really I think part of the our job is to make sure we educate every single 16,000 plus providers of IBD patients in the country on the importance of this. So um, as noted, the the statement being is that, as I just said, is that it needs to be asked routinely and we need to, in the same vein, understand what the burden of that symptom is. Not just do you have it, how severe, but how is it impacting your quality of life? How, and I'll tell you that, um, rectal bleeding, interestingly, um, affects quality of life scores in a trial. So maybe, um, I should ask you in the Q&A why you think that is and whether that's because it means I'm not better and blood means I still have inflammation or I'm sick or I'm not sure what the, you know, so that impacts all the domains. But second to that was bowel urgency after rectal bleeding. Um, so in quality of life measures using the IBDQ or other um, types of, of measures of quality of life, which I find fascinating. So um, the idea of that, and when we were validating this, this is what we also saw about the score. So quality of life and the impact of this symptom needs to be how can I help and how can we address it. There are ways to address this, but it's not as easy as always uh, changing treatment. And that's where, uh, and Dave has done a lot of work on sort of understanding the um, functional or the motility aspect of the rectum from chronic rectal inflammation and how that may impact uh, urgency. And how do we ask it? You know, what do we say to our patients? We have to, noted we have to ask, number one. I think that we should be determining, and this sort of led into what I just said, is that not all urgency is due to inflammation. And I think we understood that in the uh, early phase studies of, of um, some one, one trial in particular, we actually saw that in the short term, there was improvement in inflammation uh, with the endoscopy as well as urgency, but at 12 uh, months, sort of at the end of the day, it didn't af- absolutely correlate. That patients still had urgency even when their scope looked good. So there's a disconnect, and that's really where Dave's work is so so critical. And I think, you know, how we can advise um, tools and advice that we can give to patients, obviously there are some times that diet is actually influencing lactose intolerance or certain foods give you urgency. That's even in patients who don't have IBD, so educating around that. Um, sort of this concept of bathrooms and location of bathrooms, um, the idea of having a washroom card where you can use washrooms, um, as well as information about patient advocacy and reliable websites and also any 
tools out there or techniques to actually address the behavioral component of urgency, and that I think we need to do a better job as, as well. So just to how are we assessing it and how important is it to assess it and where are we with the tools currently that we have to use today and what the future hopefully will look like. Um, so patient-reported outcome measures, there's sort of a, a process that the FDA um, sort of works with our industry partners to put out validating and developing um, a certain measure. These are the three um, PRO measures that do include or do measure urgency, either solely, which is the urgency numeric rating scale, which I'll walk you through in just a minute, and that's the one that has been more recently uh, validated as part of the um, Mirakizumab trial, which we've presented um, at DDW and uh, ACG UEGW, so that's, that is out there. Um, and also the um, symptom and symptoms and impact questionnaire for UC, which is the SIQUC, and also the UCPROSS, which is Signs and Symptoms Diary. So now let me dig in a little bit into them to show you first the one that's probably a little bit easier and less variables to sort of confuse you as to where urgency fits into this. This is the UCPROSS, and it's a nine-item di um, di daily diary, and it includes sort of two parts. It's got the bowel signs and symptom scale and the abdominal symptom scale. The part that's in red and the reason why it's highlighted was specifically to talk about how uh, urgency is defined, just do you, um, are you suffering from, how severe is your need to go to the bathroom right away? Without necessarily on a scale perspective, but just how severe is it? Very um, uh, moderate? mild, fair, whatever the, the sort of how you feel and how you judge your, your urgency at the moment when you're filling out this score. Fast forward to the urgency NRS, which was, is an 11-point scale. And Adam, I think during the q and I want your impression of this because I'd like to know what your thoughts are on how we measured it as well. But it's essentially no urgency to the worst possible urgency on a scale of 0 to 10. And it was, uh, how severe was your urgency defined as sudden or immediate need to have a bowel movement in the last 24 hours? So it was specifically focused on the last 24 hours. And we recorded it over a seven-day period as part of the clinical trial. So what we found is that if you look at the qualities of this measure is that it's easily understood. I can pick a number from 0 to 10. Um, it's confirmed by patients to include appropriate response options. And when I talk about this, I talk about the validation, the development of the scale, and that's what um, has been reported. Um, it's, it's got content validity as well as other things you need to have questionnaire and PRO val validity, which is uh, construct validity and reliability. It doesn't rely on specific descriptors that aren't relevant to all patients who experience urgency, so it's not mixed in with other other uh, elements that could be confusing, other domains or other um, called double-barrel questions. Um, single item, as I noted, non-redundant measures of other symptoms and moves beyond just yes or no. <laughs> so that doesn't help anybody. Um, and what do you do with the yes? We're like, what's the next question after yes? So this allows us to have sort of a, um, a scale to work on and that could show responsiveness to therapy. Um, where you could say you had a meaningful change. What is a meaningful change and how did we measure it? So this is the psychometric evaluation of the urgency NRS in the phase three Mirakizumab trial and it's looking at baseline 
and then it looks at week 12. So you could see, obviously, that the, um, the scale, which is 0 to 10, that gray, which was baseline, hopefully the fact that we had improvement, meaning there was more green on the 0, 1, 2, 3, than there was gray, and there was. So it showed that it was responsive, um, for example, um, to therapy in the trial, um, and it showed that we can actually show a change uh, from the gray bar to the green bar. It doesn't tell you specifically to the patient, level, but it shows you at the population level of these 1,100 plus that you were able to see a score at 12 weeks that was more in the range of improvement or zero. That I look at the amount of zero as well, which I, makes me happy. Um, but you could see that the bulk of it is actually three, two, one, or zero. So why is that important? It's important because when we went out to evaluate what is a meaningful change, because I think that's important, and what is de defined as uh, improvement or a change, we found that a at least a three-point improvement of the NRS, so going from 10 to 6 or 7, may not be to some of us who look at scores as being meaningful, but when you look at when we did conducted the uh, actual validation and correlated a score to the, the interviews that we did, it was quite striking how we were able to look at a score relative to how they were speaking about their urgency. So it did add some um, part of the validity and the construction of the of the scale. And I think that's important for us in the clinic to say if we go and use this and implement and add it to our EPIC um, chart, for example, or put it in the waiting room for patients to fill out. However, we want to use this score is that we want to have sort of a north star to feel that we are making change for our patients. And it looks like at least three point helped us to find that we're moving in the right direction. So I think that was also something that was really great to be able to see people's responses and the fact that we made change. And I showed you the frequency of zero, one, two, or three. And in the trial, we also measured something called urgency remission. Um, so there was this concept of a score of zero, one, or two defined as urgency remission. And the good news is, is that we were able to meet those endpoints. So it, again, the fact that we called it out as a key secondary endpoint in a trial that has never been done like that before um, really shows that we're advancing in our understanding of what's important to patients. And I think that should be never, uh, you can never overstate that. So in summary, urgency is an important but often overlooked PR, you know, patient reported outcome in UC. Patients with UC, we saw there's many reasons why, and Adam added another one that we need to add to the list, not just embarrassing, but also the concept of why I have the urgency and it moved into, it's my problem, my GI doc is going to care about my blood and my stool frequency, which I don't even know what that means to them. So that also gave me some great insight. Um, simple communication strategies are really required to appreciate urgency, as well as measurements of it and how we define it. And um, moving forward, hopefully we'll be using uh, this uh, scale for in the clinic, because that's the purpose. It's not just for clinical trials. The goal is to actually move these things that are meaningful and show change and put it into clinic, put it into our EHR, however we want to measure it, um, because I think it really um, shows us that we have a goal to set and we now know what the improvement we want to see uh, in our patients. So uh, I will end there. But honestly, leading that up, developing this is really important. And we have some great questions from the audience, but there's time for people to put some more in. Um, I'm actually going to start with one to Adam. Uh, first of all, a couple people commented um, and thanked you for being here and um, said how 
authentic having a patient's story uh, adds to an educational symposium like this. So we're very grateful that you did this. The question, though, is what do you think about this urgency NRS? Um, does it make sense to you going from 0 to 10? And does an urgency remission score of 0, 1, or 2 make sense? Is that something that resonates with you? It definitely does. Yeah, I think um, at, at the very least, it's, it's the door to the room to talk about what, what the rest of the, the symptoms are. And um, it, that's why these objective data points are so important because it at least gets the start of the conversation. And then like we talked about how it, how it affects each patient um, to their day to day. So I think it is, is very important and, and it definitely starts the snowball for the conversation. Marla, how did the urgency remission of zero, one, or two get defined or developed as a, compared to what we might have assumed would be just a zero? Yeah, so it was it was based on uh, I have to this requires me going back to all of the multiple interviews of twenty five or whatever that were that were done. So um, it was based on the responses and what they scored to match their response. So it was more so correlated with how they responded. And when they felt that their urgency was in remission, what score did that come? It wasn't always a zero. So again, it's always difficult because um, it's not intuitive that a zero would equal none. But their responses drove what the score was most or more so correlated with lack of urgency or no, no urgency. Yeah. Another question about the index, and then we're going to talk more about clinical management and some other things, um, which is, do you have a sense for the timing of it? Does it correlate to um, the improvement in the other PROs or the endoscopic improvement, or is it on its own time frame? So in the first 12 weeks, it more so correlates with what you would think, you know. So we judge success of drugs as rectal bleeding stool frequency in every trial, which is the Mayo score. Um, and we added this, so we were able to show that they did follow. Not 100%, of course, because there's many reasons for defining trips to the restroom. You just uh, taught us, as well as urgency is defined differently for everybody. So that, But it does, in the first 12 weeks, more so correlate with objective. As you get on, as I was noting, as you get to a year, biomarkers didn't really correlate, so calprotectin. But in the beginning, calpro matched urgency improvement not so much at 12 months. So I think what starts to click in at that point is more so maybe some of the things that you noted drive urgency. It's, it's not the inflammation itself. I'm going to take the next question just to give you a break. <laughs> um, the question is about whether calprotectin correlates with urgency, and you can add to it, but I'll start by saying that that's part of how we have to evaluate all this, right? So there are the patients who have inflammation that persists, endoscopic or biomarker inflammation who have urgency, where the first step is usually let's try to fix what we see, which is the inflammation. And the answer is yes, um, when there's inflammation and urgency together, we start with that piece. But uh, as you heard in some of the data we shared, and uh, I can tell you from our other research, that you can have patients who have normal fecal calprotectin in whom Calpro was reliable for their inflammatory condition. So in other words, you've treated the inflammation, but who still describe urgency, sometimes even substantial urgency. 
So there are a number of questions here about what's the clinical evaluation and treatment for patients who have that. And so I'm going to ask you to start it off, Marla, since you um, have really led the field. What, how do you approach a patient who says, I'm having urgency, or yes, I wear a diaper, um, or can't get to work without stopping on my way in? Um, what do you do to manage them, and how do you evaluate them? And this is, we'll assume in the face of, let's say, objective markers being normal for the sake of this discussion, which is where we start to think about, is there a role of food that comes up automatically, lactose intolerance or other things, as I mentioned. Um, there may be certain foods that trigger you to run to the restroom. Food aside, it then seriously requires some sort of um, and tools and behavioral health tools to start to disconnect the pelvic floor from the anticipatory anxiety that may come along with it, the um, idea that I constantly feel like my rectum is in spasm, but yet there's no evidence of inflammation, you definitely need to start working on things such as mind-body techniques. Because I think, to me, and you know this is, my, this is my gig, is the idea that unless we take what happened where it started, it became centralized, as I was talking about in our conversation, unless we're able to disassociate what's happening peripherally to what your brain thinks is happening, we won't get very far. And I, I cannot emphasize enough that when you ask symptom burden and if you take a 100 patients that come in to use some of our behavioral health techniques or whatever at Sinai or wherever, urgency is what, urgency and fatigue, those are the two things. And funny, the Confide survey addressed both of these in a way, or we know a little bit more about fatigue as well, but that is the symptom burden. And even, I know my doctor said my scope is normal, that's a lot of the conversation, but I don't feel like I'm in remission. What is remission? Functional remission. And the only way to do that is to give folks the tools or some techniques to actually try and disconnect the brain mind from the body. That's my approach. I don't know if you feel there are other things that we can do to actually address this. Uh, I think that that's a key point here, and I think that it's um, a research question whether the longer somebody's in remission, the less of some of that they feel. Um, the work that Marla referred to in our group, um, which had been done many years ago in a slightly different way, was demonstrating that the rectum doesn't um, stretch and squeeze normally in people with colitis, even when they have endoscopic or histologic remission. Um, so you can think about something more mechanical just in how that organ functions. Very interestingly, in a small number of the patients in that analysis, and we did it by inflating a balloon in their rectum and measuring all these pressures, people who normalize their histology, normal histology, not even quiescent, actually had rectal compliance that was similar to non-colitis controls. So in other words, there was a suggestion there, at least hypothesis generating, that if you normalize the histology, um, and those are people usually who've been in deep remission for a long time, you can remodel the rectal function. And one of the messages I share with patients is the longer you're under good control, the less of these persistent symptoms you may have. Now there's the other things, of course, that Marla mentioned as well, like pelvic floor dysfunction, which occurs in people who have tried to train themselves to hold things in and maybe haven't um, maintained a normal um, evacuation uh, behavior. And then there's also bile salts and other things we need to understand. It's not the topic of today's symposium, but in Crohn's disease, 
up to 50% of our patients with Crohn's, even of the small bowel, will describe urgency as well. So there's clearly a need for more understanding here. And of course, the first step is asking the questions. So we, we have time for one last question. I'm going to actually ask it to Adam. Because I think that the main uh, message we'd like everyone to leave with today is from a patient. So Adam, what would be your message to patients living with colitis to empower them to uh, discuss this or to understand it with their doctors and nurses? Yeah, and I, I think one of the things is is to feel comfortable that that there's discomfort from the provider side that sometimes we just don't know how to ask the question and and to feel comfortable going into these um, appointments with with your provider and and kind of both the beauty and the curse with IBD is that it is a chronic condition and that we can develop these relationships with our providers over time and whether it's the the first appointment or or later on to um, to feel comfortable and to know that your providers do understand where you're coming from, even though um, they might not know how to ask it directly. And um, I think that's that's pretty much the big thing that I would that I would tell patients um, coming in. And yeah, and that they shouldn't live with this, right? Right. That they right. can expect more. And to bring it up. Right. Yes. Yep. Um, so I want to thank everyone for being here. I want to especially thank Dr. Adam Benjamin for joining us, and congratulations on his upcoming GI fellowship. Uh, and, of course, thank my uh, good friend and partner, Dr. Marla Dubinsky. Have a good day. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.